So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations. And this, the 1st of August, it's the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present this programme today is Shane Ambrose. Good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Good, thank you very much indeed. After that fine spell of weather we've had here in Ireland, uh, once in a lifetime, uh, but uh, beautiful, really enjoyed it. Listeners might remember from last week that um, this broadcast, uh, for the time being anyway, won't be broadcast on West Limit 102, just to remind listeners of that fact. But we are especially um, delighted to welcome, as usual, our listeners who are housebound, those who are lonely and struggling in some way. And our listeners who support us each week in prayer, thank you so much indeed for, for contacting us with that and for keeping us in prayer. Our programme includes interviews, uh, chats and faith topics, inspirational music and reflections on the Sunday Gospel. All of our programmes can be heard on Come and See Inspirations at buzzprep.com. Just Google us on Come and See Inspirations, you'll find us there. We're also on Spotify, iTunes and also on Facebook by searching us on Come and See Inspirations. You can contact us, as I mentioned, by texting on 087-6088-667. That's 87 6088667 or email inspirations at gmail.com Now with this point of the programme as usual Shane shares with us Saints for the Week whose feast days we'll be celebrating this week Shane Okay so as we said this is week uh, this is the 18th week in ordinary time so those of us praying the Psalter we're on week 2 um so today is the 1st of August, so we're not celebrating the feast day of St. Alphonsus de Guri this year. St. Alphonsus de Guri is the founder of the Redemptorists in Limerick. Now, the Redemptorist Fathers will celebrate the feast day because it's their patron saint and it's their founder. But for the general calendar, we don't celebrate him this year because he falls on the Sunday and Sunday takes precedence for most of us. So Monday then is the feast day. There's a couple of ones. It's um, St. Isubius of Vercelli who was renowned for his preaching against Arianism. And then there was St. Peter Julian Emiard, who died in 1868, and who founded the Blessed Sacrament Fathers and the Servants of the Blessed Sacrament. So for anyone that's in Dublin, to the best of my knowledge, the Blessed Sacrament Fathers are the ones that have the chapel there on Bachelor's Walk. Yes, from memory, yes. Yes, from memory, okay. Uh, the other thing, of course, on the 2nd of August is the is what's called the Indulgence of St. Mary of the Portilunca, which is um, basically, it's, it's the church associated with the Franciscans. And basically, um, they, there's an indulgence available for people that go in, confession, Holy Communion, prayers of the Pope's intentions, etc., and it's available on that day as well. So then on the 3rd of August, we have on the Irish calendar, we have the feast day of St. Senac of Clonard. So he was one of the 12 apostles of Ireland, he's sometimes called, whose feast day we celebrate on the 6th of January, which is a bit bad timing, but anyway. So he was educated at the School of Clonard in Ireland, who's a spiritual student of St. Finian. Um, he was an extreme ascetic who lived a life of penance and self-denial. And that's a common theme, actually, across many of the early Celtic saints. Asceticism was a huge part of the tradition um, at that time. Um, he was often assigned to shepherd seminarians at Clonard. It's a strange way to describe it, but that's how it's put in. And it, which included St. Columba of Terry Glass. And he succeeded Finian as abbot of Clonard. And he died sometime in the 6th century. So that's St. Senec of Clonard. Then on Wednesday, the 4th of August, we have the feast day of St. John Vianney. John Vianney, of course, is a priest and, of course, is the patron saint of uh, parish priests. He died in 1859. He had to contend with poverty. He had to do military service because he lived during the, the, rebel, the, the French Revolution and Napoleon. And he was also... He, the general agreement was he wasn't exactly the brightest um, straight pin in the pack. Let's put it. Let's put it that way, right? Um, it's no. It's, it's it's known he had intellectual shortcomings and mm-hmm. he struggled. He had to struggle with the studies to become a priest, and it's it's well it's well recognized in the literature about his life. And in 1817, he was sent to care for the people of Ars, which was a small, obscure French village, and this, you know priest who was seen as unlearned however 
had a marvelous, what was described as a marvelous gift for seeing into the depths of the soul. And from 1830 on, he averaged 12 to 16 a day, 16 hours a day, I beg your pardon, in the confessional. So he's very much associated with confessions and hearing confessions. So that's St. John Vianney. Then on Thursday, the 5th of August, we have the dedication of the Basilica of Mary Major. Now, we've talked about this on the program before a couple of times. So um, why do you celebrate the dedication of a building? So the idea is, of course, that you know churches are dedicated, they're set aside for the worship of God. And there are particular feasts and commemorations of those particular dedications which are on the universal calendar. So, for example, we have Mary Major in August. We have St. Peter and St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. And then at the diocesan level, we celebrate also, for example, the dedication of the cathedrals, so the dedication of St. John's in Limerick. And some parishes will also celebrate the dedication of their own local churches. So what is dedication? It is the formal ceremony that is done where a, ch- where a building is consecrated as a church. And it's where you know, the walls are blessed, the bells are baptized maybe, the first, the altar is, is consecrated and the first mass is said. And um, it doesn't happen, now it, it doesn't, a lot of rural churches may not have been consecrated. They may be blessed, but they may not have gone through the full ceremony of consecration because particularly prior to the Second Vatican Council, the ceremony of consecration was quite complex. Um, it involved a lot of Latin and Greek. <laughs> And um, one of the other things, of course, was um, church altars in particular had to have relics of the saints embedded into them. So that was that was a requirement. So a very, very few, very few parish churches would, would, would actually have that. So it's generally the big ones. So like the cathedral in Limerick would have it um, from a local perspective. But anyway, Thursday is the dedication of the Basilica of St. Mary Major. That was built by Pope Sixtus III after the Council of Ephesus in 431. And the reason that the Basilica of Mary Major is an important church in terms of church history is because it is the first big church, is the first papal basilica, which was dedicated to Mary, the mother of God. So it's important because it commemorates the Council of Ephesus, which declared that Mary was the mother of God. And by making that declaration, what the church fathers, the council fathers were doing was they were reaffirming the humanity of Christ against the heresies that had crept in that were saying that he wasn't fully human. So if people think about their catechism, what do we say? Christ was both fully human and fully divine and, and you know, and, and, and together in, 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 in one person, I'm going to say. I got that term wrong, but we'll come back mm-hmm. to it. Um, so that's why the Basilica is important, that the dedication of the Basilica, and it's dedicated to Mary, the Mother of God. Now, it's an interesting, of course, Basilica as well in Rome. So any of you that have been to Rome, the Basilica of Mary Major is the one that is near the train station, uh, Termini. So if any of you have been to, if any of you been to Rome, you chances are, you if you got the train in from the airport, you got off at Termini train station. Or if you were getting the bus into Vatican City, you would have got it at Termini as well. So Mary Major is the big, 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 big church that's very near Termini. And it's an interesting church in many respects. The tradition was that Sixtus III dreamt that Our Lady let um, a shower of rose petals fall on the hill uh, where she wanted the church built. And when he woke up, he saw he saw the rose petals. And so during the mass and the dedication, on the face of the dedication of the church, rose petals are tossed down from the ceiling. Um, it's a very, what's described, it's a very Baroque church. Now, what does that mean? It's very gilded. There's a lot of gold in there in terms of the ceiling and stuff. Now, it's quite pretty, but it, it can be a bit overpowering. Uh, the other two inter- interesting things about the, the, the Basilica of Mary Major in Rome, one is it's very, Pope Francis is, is very, is very um, what's the word I would use? He, he's a frequent visitor to the Basilica of Mary Major because anytime the Pope leaves to go on a papal trip and returns from a papal trip, he calls in to see the icon of Our Lady that's held in the Basilica of Mary Major. And it's uh, Popular Romani is the, is the name, the icon of Our Lady, Popular Romani, Our Lady, uh, patron of Rome, or um, popular of Rome, uh, beloved of Rome, devoted of Rome. And um, the other thing then, if you ever go into a Mary Major as well, that off to the side of the main altar, there is a shrine that by tradition holds the manger 
from Bethlehem. So it's very much, the Basilica is very much associated with the Christmas story. Um, so that's, that's Mary Major. That's the Basilica. That's the dedication we celebrate on Thursday. Yeah, we would let ourselves and thanks just for reminding us of those things. Yep. Yeah. So then Friday next week, so it's the 6th of August. It's the first Friday, folks. For those of you that want to restart your devotions in terms of the first Fridays, for the, you know, and so it's the 6th of August. So the 6th of August, of course, is the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord. So that, that, uh, that, that event on Tabor, which we commemorate on the 6th. It's a big day, actually, for those that have a devotion, of course, with Medjugorje, because I think it's one of the patronal feasts of the, the parish of Medjugorje, and it's the day when they have the big mass up on Krishavak, the Cross Mountain, uh, overlooking the village of Medjugorje. I was there myself a couple of times. It's they go up, you go up the night before, you stay overnight, and then there's a big mass set the following morning. Uh, interesting things about August the 6th, it's also the date of that Paul the Sixth died. He was in Castle uh, San Galfo, or, or San Galfo. You know the castle, the Pope's, the Pope, yeah, yeah, the Pope's castle in Rome, and uh, or outside Rome, and that's where Paul the Sixth was when he died. So he died on on um, on the sixth of August. Yeah. Okay. So then Saturday, then so for those of you doing the first devotion um, in in uh, the the first Saturdays, so next Saturday is the first Saturday of the month. And in terms of feast day, it is the feast day of St. Pa- Sixtus II. Um, he died in 258, and himself and his four deacon companions were put to death. I think it was under Diocletian again. Now, obviously, as it's the start of the month, John, uh, we also remember the Pope's intentions. Mm-hmm. So the Pope's intention for August 2021 is for evangelization. So let us pray for the Church that she may receive from the Holy Spirit the grace and strength to reform herself in the light of the gospel. So that's the Pope's intention. Now, just to correct myself before I go any further, okay. the name of that icon in Mary Major uh. is Salus Populi Romani. That's, I was bugging me. I couldn't think of the proper name. So it's Salus Populi Romani, or it's the health of salvation of the Roman people. And just in case you're wondering what I'm on about, do you remember the Pope's Urbi et Orbi at the start of covid so one of the two things that were brought to St. Peter's Square, one was that famous uh, plague cross. Yes, yes. But the other was this icon, uh, the icon of Salus Populi Romani, the protectress and health of the Roman people. And as I said, Pope, Pope Francis has a big devotion to it. He visits every time he leaves and goes on trips. That's and right. So that's what we have, John, in terms of Saints of the Week this week. Now, a couple of news items. Mm-hmm. So obviously last weekend was the last... Sunday in July, so it would have been Reek Sunday, because Reek Sunday was spread throughout the month of July because of the COVID restrictions. Just to remind people as well, technically, under the restrictions, as far as I'm aware from the diocese at the moment, there should be no graveyard masses being done in the month of August, and I'm afraid that also applies to patron days. So I know myself in my own parish in Shankland Fines in Robertstown, our patron day on the 15th of August at the well in Barragon is not where there's no official, there's no mass being said at the well this year, which is only the second time in many, 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 many years. Um, so just, just to point that out as well. Also, just to remind people that unfortunately the novena in Knock is cancelled. So there's no national, sorry, not cancelled, it's postponed. Actually, uh, Father Gibbons was very specific in terms of the terminology he used. He didn't cancel it, he postponed it. So they're, they're hoping maybe they might be able to do something later in the year. But saying that, knock is open. So if people were, were wanted to do their, their pilgrimage to knock, the basilica is still open, the church is still open. There are restrictions and limitations and all the rest of it, but it is actually open. I know a couple of people that were actually in knock last week. And not being not, of course, it poured rain, but, <laughs> um, but just, I thought it was just, it was an interesting thing to say to people, just to, for people to realize the shrine is actually open. There, now, there are limitations and there's some things not open, but the basilica is open, there's masses being said, and I think there's also confessions being held. Um, so, uh, so just, 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 just so people are aware of that. So that's what we have. That's what I have, John, for this morning. That's pretty comprehensive. Thank you very much indeed. You mentioned there about um, the sixth of um, the sixth Friday being the feast of Transfiguration, and you mentioned Medjugorje. Just to remind us, as we mentioned last week, that the thirty-second uh, Medjugorje Youth Festival uh, started today, actually. 
That's us today. Um, and the theme this year is What Good Thing Must I Do? Not a bad one for us to all take on. What Good Thing Must I Do? So it starts off this evening, uh, Medjugorje time, which is, which is an hour in front of us. Um, the roadshow begins at 6 o'clock over there. You, the opening of the Youth Festival is at uh, 7 o'clock. And then at uh, 9 o'clock, Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. These are streamed live on Mary TV. Uh, .tv, or also on the Medjugorje uh, website. This continues Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where there'll be prayer and catechesis in the morning at 10 a.m., Angelus at 12, testaments again in the afternoon, mass and adoration. There's a lovely one that I actually like. It's on Wednesday evening. There's a theatre and musical show by Chenekro, and that starts at quarter past nine Medjugorje time, which will be quarter past eight hour time. And as Shane said, it uh, it finishes off with the climbing of uh, Mount Krusevac uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Holy Mass is at 5 o'clock. Brings back memories to you, Shane, when you done that when you were over there? Yeah, I, I, I did it. I went twice. I was there twice for the Youth Festival. Long, God, it's gone back 20 years ago now. Um, yeah, no, it was enjoyable at the time, I have to say. Um I, you know, I, I'll be honest with people. I, 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 I wouldn't regard myself as a devotee of of, of Medjugorje. Mm. Um, I have an open mind on it. I'm yeah. kind of, you know, and for me, I suppose it's one of those places where you know it by its fruits. Yes. And you know that for me, I, I don't, I don't have a view either way on whether or not the apparitions are happening. But in terms of Medjugorje as a place of of prayer and pilgrimage. Um, you know, it brings a lot of peace, peace and, and com- comfort to people, and and it has a place where there has been many conversions. So, you know, in and of itself, that 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 is not a bad thing. No, you, you'd echo my own thoughts there. Um, and in fact, there is something on because um, Medjugorje are celebrating forty years of operations, and there is something up on the Mary TV website, and I have, actually have recorded it. And maybe at some stage in the future, we might just play that. It's just recounting the forty forty years and forty events, forty forty major events that happened in the story of Medjugorje. But now, just before we go for a piece of music this morning, first piece of music, uh, we have a spiritual communion prayer that we continue to pray, especially those who can't receive Jesus at uh, Mass this morning. And this is the prayer we pray, and we we'd invite people to pray with us spiritually. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. So now we go for our first bit of music this morning. It's one that I haven't played for some time. It's sung by Wendy Whitehead and Brian Dirkskeen, and this one is entitled, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. So join us again in part two, where Shane has something for us to, something of interest for us to listen to. Join us again in part two. Mm-hmm.
Welcome back this morning, listeners, to Come and See Inspirations. My name is Shane Ambrose, and I'm delighted that you're joining myself, uh, myself and John here on our podcast production this morning. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a slight little journey through saints, and in particular, Irish saints, and in particular, saints that are in the process to becoming saints, if you know what I mean. So, John, you've asked me a couple of times about the whole process of saint making, and we, we talk about servants of God, venerables, blesseds, and then we get to actual saints. And what does it mean? So the process is, there's a formal process of investigation that the church goes through before it would make the decision whether or not to declare somebody a saint. And generally, most people know the bit about, well, to become a saint, you have to do a miracle. And yes, that's one, that's one thing. But, to become, but as you work up along, there's different degrees of investigations. And following the degrees of investigations, you kind of move along the process where they review your life, your writings. They gather testimony about, your, about the person and they investigate the person. Sometimes they may even exhume the remains just to inspect them. If you remember a couple of years ago when they were doing that for John Henry Newman, um, they exhumed, he was blessed with John Henry Newman, and they were exhuming his remains to gather relics. And uh, when they exhumed his, when, when they dug up the grave, they found nothing. Everything had dissolved. Um, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, so that's in terms of that whole process. So, and, but it's only a process which has been centralized by the Holy See since about the 11th century. So what you find is many of the Irish saints on the calendars, they're what are called pre-congregations. They, they were there before the congregation for saints. Um, so, for example, our own St. Patrick, St. Bridget, St. Colum Kill, you know, the three biggies on the calendar. No pope ever stood up and declared them saint officially, like happens at the moment. But they are saints of the church because they have been acclaimed by the people. They've been accepted by the bishops. And so, therefore, they're on our, they're on our calendar. And we can commemorate them and celebrate them and look to them as witnesses for the journey. Because ultimately, that's what saints are. They are people that are held up as role models for the Christian faithful to follow. And it's an interesting one. I didn't realize this actually until a couple of years ago, John. When the Pope makes the declaration that somebody is a saint... It's actually an exercise of papal infallibility. Ooh. So it's an interesting one because uh, it poses a couple of questions. Uh, it was it poses a couple of questions for me because a lot of you talk to older people in particular, and um, they'll say to you, "Well, there was such and such a saint on the calendar, but the, it got rid of them in after the second yeah, the council." Yeah. Um, and yes, there was there was a reform of the calendar in at the council about 1969, and Pope Paul VI asked that the saints that were on it that we weren't 100% sure about should really be taken off. So there was a couple of there was a couple of big hitters that were caught with that. You had Saint Christopher, Saint Barbara, Saint Philomena. Um, a lot of those they were taken off because basically. We couldn't stand over the historical accuracy that these people actually existed. Now, Philomena has crept back in. Okay. <laughs> um, I've, 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 I've seen her around a bit. Christopher, despite the proclamations of popes, poor St. Christopher is still hanging around and he's still <laughs> very popular with people. So he's, he's still there. So it's just, it's just an interesting one as well. People power. And he's, exactly. People power. Because that's one of the key things that mm. they will look for when they're talking about making somebody a saint. Yeah. Like we had, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, John, we had the guys on from the US about Father Emile Capon. Yes. Uh, the, the, the guy that died in the prisoner of war camp. So the whole thing about it is, um, you, when you're trying to get someone canonized, you have to prove that there is what's called a cultus. There's a devotion to a particular saint. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the religious congregations, um, they try to see how far they can get, say, for example, with their founders. And that's one of the problems or one of the challenges. So when I'm doing the saints every week, one of the challenges I come across when I'm trying to pick out saints is the fact that a lot of our saints are men and women who were religious. 
So it's only in the last century that we see more and more lay people being canonized. So it's it's a bit it's a particular it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but they're held up, you know, and obviously you can't hold up you know, religious necessarily as role models for lay people or married couples or whatever. So that's thing, that's something that particularly John Paul II tried to change. And at the time, John Paul II got an awful lot of criticisms about his saint-making process because uh, he canonized so many saints. As it's happened, even though Francis has been in, in the office less than John Paul II, he's canonized more yes, saints. Yes, yes, yes. Because one of the reasons is he did a bunches of martyrs, people that had been killed in different countries. So I think it was Korea and maybe the Spanish Civil War, I think. I need to double check that. But anyway, coming back to what I wanted to talk about this morning, it is the Irish ones. So it's the Irish causes that are out there at the moment. Now, I started looking into this a couple of months ago and I was looking around to see, was there any place centrally where I could get the names of Irish causes? And there isn't because... Sometimes it's been looked after by a diocese. Sometimes it's been looked after by a religious congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends. There's no central kind of place in Ireland. So there was one or two that I wanted to pick out. So the first three are to deal with the Legion of Mary. So the first one, of course, is Frank Duff. Frank is the founder of the Legion, and mm-hmm. Frank has the title Servant of God. So uh, that's the first step on the process, right? And he was declared a Servant of God... Uh, I've lost it. One second. Okay. I've lost my space. Give it to me a second. So he said he's anyway, he's he's commemorated anyway on the 7th of November because that's when he died. So Frank, of course, is famous because he's the founder of the of the Legion of Mary. And did you know he attended the Second Vatican Council? No, I didn't know that now then. Frank, Frank Duff attended the Second Vatican Council and he was bringing and drawing attention to the role of the laity in the church. So he, uh, there's a decree on the apostles of the laity, which was issued by the Second Vatican Council, and Frank Duff had input into that. So Frank was born on the 7th of June, 1889. He was the eldest of seven children, and they, he was a dub, true and true. So they lived on St. Patrick's Road in Drumcondra, and Frank attended Blackrock College. So um, through his work with St. Vincent de Paul, he was exposed to the poverty in Dublin. And that's why he started kind of getting involved uh, with soup kitchens and so on and so forth. And then um, they, were, they set up soup kitchens, what they called Catholic soup kitchens, because a lot of people were going to the Protestant soup kitchens. Okay. So there's a bit of, you know, ecumenical mm-hmm. rivalry mm-hmm. there at the time. And then he retired from the civil service in 1934, and he devoted all his time then to the Legion of Mary. So he set up the Legion to um, uh, to the Legion and spreading the Legion as a lay apostolate at the service of the Catholic Church. He's written quite an awful lot. There's quite a bit about writings that he's done. So that's that's Frank, and he died in what year did he die? In 19, 1980. Fair so, age. So. Yeah, so it's really recent. So Frank, and he's a, he's a servant of God. The other one, of course, is Adele Quinn. Now, we've had someone on about Adele before, the venerable, and she's a venerable, so she's a step ahead of Frank. Um, and she died in 1944. And Adele, of course, was from Castle Magner in County Cork. And she went off, she developed tuberculosis, I think she was in her mid-twenties, uh, no, at the age of 29 and dying of tuberculosis, she became the Legion of Mary envoy to West Africa and was a ex- very active missionary in East and Central Africa. And she settled in Nairobi and worked out there. She, she, she between Dar es Salaam and Mauritius. Now, I can tell you, as someone who has lived in African countries, the amount of ground that this woman covered is unbelievable. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, and rough conditions as well. And she, you know, even fighting her illness for seven and a half years, she established hundreds of legion branches and councils in what is today Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Malawi, and Mauritius. And even today, I know myself, there's a great devotion to her in the legions of Mary, particularly in uh, Uganda. So she died and she's buried in Nairobi. She died in 1944. She was only 36. And she's buried in the missionary cemetery in Nairobi in Kenya. So that's uh, one of our venerables. So her cause for beatification was introduced in 1956 and she was declared venerable by John Paul II in 1994. 
So the cause for her beatification continues. So beatification would be the next step in the process. Okay. So they're looking, for, they're looking for a miracle through Adele's intercession. The next one then is the servant of God, Alfie Lamb. So this is another legionnaire, legionary. Legionnaire, yep. He was from Tullamore and he was born in 1932, actually during the Eucharistic Congress. Um, a huge man for, he, he'd spent part of his youth in the novitiate of the Christian Brothers, uh, but the health wasn't great with him either. So he found his vocation in the Legion of Mary and he was appointed an envoy for the Legion in 1953. And he left for South and Central America. So for six years, he worked promoting the Legion in Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, Uruguay and Brazil. Uh, but he died in Buenos Aires after a, a short illness in 1959. And he is buried in the vaults of the Irish Christian Brothers in the Recolata Cemetery in Buenos Aires. And again, he had a huge devotion to Our Lady and um, in particular, the, the, the setting up. He, it, it's, it's, um, he had a great facility for learning languages, actually, Spanish and Portuguese, which is why he was able to do so much. So that's Alfie, that's Alfie Lamb. So that's our three legionaries, our legionaries of Mary. Um, then another one which people may not have heard about is Mother Kevin. Now, hmm. she is otherwise known as Teresa Kearney. Uh, again, there's a Ugandan connection. She was a missionary in Uganda and was the first superior general of the Franciscan Missionary Sisters for Africa. She was born in Arklow in County Wicklow in 1875. And that was three months after her dad was killed. And she was 10 years old when her mother died. And she was raised by her maternal grandmother, uh, who was known as Granny Grinnell. And um, she was a student in Arklow didn't do so great there um but she wanted to train as a teacher but the finances weren't available so she became what was called a junior assistant mistress and there were the undervalued untrained teachers who made up the bulk of the profession she taught in the in dublin and england for a while she looked after her aunt and then after her aunt died she taught about becoming a religious so she applied for admission to the franciscan sisters in london in mill hill and she wanted to be posted among African-Americans, but she was called to serve in Africa. And her role in Africa then, at 1902, she, at the request of Bishop Hanlon of the Mill Hill Fathers, she went off to what was the Vicariate of Upper Nile, which in modern language is modern-day Uganda. And they ended up at Nasambia, which is in um, Kampala. Now, I've been there. So Nasambia Hill is known as Catholic Hill. So it was the center of the Mill Hills for their vicariate, which was the area of, of Africa that they had responsibility for as priests and for spreading the faith and all the rest of it. And to this day, Nisambia, it's where there's a lot of the, the Catholic secretariat. There's a huge Catholic hospital there, which was set up by Mother Kevin. And it's, you know, it's known as Catholic Hill. So she, she went to Africa. She worked for years there. It's a vast territory. Her name is Household Name. And she spent 52 years working in Africa, founding several missions, including the Congress the 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 that bears her name and um one of her biggest things was about the concern for women and women's rights and she worked tirelessly particularly to educate um Afri ugandan women in particular and she lived to see one of her pupils receive the first bachelor of science degrees in east africa and another became the first woman doctor um so you know so that's so she founded the little sisters of saint francis in 1923 which is why she's known as mother kevin uh she set up a, she set up a leprosarium and she then she died in 1957 in new york or sorry in boston and uh, she died quietly and alone uh because she was there fundraising and Cardinal Cushing of Boston was a friend of hers and he arranged for her, her remains to be brought back to Ireland to be buried in um, Dundalk. Uh, but she was only there for one month because basically the people of Uganda asked for her body to be returned to the country that she loved. So her body was brought back to the community in, in, in Uganda. So that's Mother Kevin. So that's another cause that's pending at the moment. Um, I'm focusing on the women predominantly. I just want to highlight, do you remember Mary, uh, let me take, no, Mary, Catherine Macaulay. Yes. Now, pe people will say, is Catherine Macaulay's name familiar? She's a founder of... Macaulay used to be on no, no no Catherine Macaulay used to be on the old five pound note. She, yeah. if you remember, before the euro, the fiver, the fiver was a small brown note. Now this is not the old old fiver. This was the one they they changed in the nineties, 
and it was Catherine Macaulay that was on it. And Catherine Macaulay, she was born in Dublin in 1778, and she's the founder of the Sisters of Mercy. And she founded them in Dublin in 1831. Interesting woman. She was lucky to get an inheritance, which allowed her to set up the Centre of Mercy in Dublin. And eventually then she had to found... um, she had to found. She founded the the the, the, the Sisters of Mercy. Now the sister, the House of Mercy, it's called. I beg your pardon. She founded it in 1827. Now Catherine McCauley is an interesting because she her congregation, the Mercy Sisters, when she set it up, they were unusual at the time because they weren't cloistered uh, and they were out serving the poor. Um, so and the work that they have done, there was a lot of misunderstanding, criticisms her, and of course we know that. There's a lot of issues around some some of the history of the sisters, but it doesn't take care. It doesn't take away from some of the great work that they have done over the years. Um, and just and she was very much focused again on focusing on supporting women, particularly who were destitute and who were uneducated and had no other resources. So that's Catherine McCauley. Uh, I wanted to mention Mary Aikenhead as well. She was a Cork woman. And she's known as Mary, Mother Mary Frances, or Mary Aikenhead. She was born in 1787, and she is the founder of the Religious Sisters of Charity. Now, obviously, okay. they're in the news a bit at the mm-hmm. moment, so we won't go too much into that. Mm-hmm. But just she's another one whose cause is pending, and I thought it was an interesting one just to mention. She was given the title Servant of God in 1921, and she is Venerable Mary Aikenhead since 2015. So it's very recent. So 2015 would have been under Benedict. So Benedict was the one that declared her venerable. And so the religious, uh, the other thing is uh, she was um, the, the, sisters, the religious sister of charity. They founded our ladies hospice in Harold's Cross. And that's where Mary Aiken had spent the remainder of her life. And that's where she died. And so that's Mary Aikenhead. So that's another one. And then uh, two, maybe two, three more, John. Okay. Um, one interesting one I came across and to be honest, I hadn't didn't know a whole lot about this one. Little Nelly of Holy God. It seems ah, yeah. yes. yes. So she's very much associated, of course, with Cork. Mm-hmm. And there is a bit of a tatarara there at the moment, of course, because um let's go through the story. So little Nelly, she was um Basically, she's a saint, or she's a she's a little girl that lived in Cork. She died in 1904, and there's a huge local devotion to her among people in mm. Cork, and that she had a huge devotion to um, the Blessed Sacrament. And it is said that through her intervention is why Pope Pius IX reduced the age to receive Holy Communion to the age of seven, or the age of reason. Um, now, the problem is, little Nelly, um, they haven't officially opened her calls for canonization yet. So it was reviewed in, what year was it reviewed? It was reviewed in 2019. And at the time, Bishop John Buckley said he wasn't convinced that the evidence collated warranted sending it to Rome at the time so they're still they're still trying to they're still trying to get stories together gather people's testimony mm-hmm. and make sure that there is a devotion to little nelly the other difficulty of course at the moment is that um there's a, the question of where is little nelly's remains so little nelly was originally buried in um I can't remember where she was buried, but she was moved to the, to the graveyard of the Good Shepherd Sisters. But unfortunately, the Good Shepherd Sisters, they've closed their monastery or their convent in Cork, and it's been sold. So the whole place is currently boarded up. Yeah. And it's also caught up because it's also the Magdalene Laundry Cemetery as well. So there's that difficulty yeah. in trying to deal with mm. anything. But the Diocese of Cork was trying to remove Little Nelly, but it's run into difficulty. So that's Little Nelly of Holy God. So just an interesting one that people might be able to to look into. And then finally, John, I'm just going to mention uh, by name. So there's Nano Nagel. So Nano uh, is the founder of the, very much associated, she's the founder of the Presentation Order. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. as, again, associated with Cork, very much associated with education. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to mention her name. Mm-hmm. And Nano is, do, 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 the Presentation Sisters are still there. Um, and they've opened a sister, as, as um, what you call it, a a center about Nano in in Cork as well to tell her story. Believe, but yeah. the last one, one, the last the last story I want to tell today is the story of Matt Matt Talbot. And Matt is is he's a venerable, and he's a he's a he's a cause which is often overlooked. 
And he's very much, of course, he's a Dublin story. Matt was a dub, all right? Mm-hmm. So don't, but don't hold that against him. No. He died in 1925, and he's, he's an Irish aesthetic and very much associated, uh, of course, with combating alcoholism because Matt suffered from it in, early in his life. So he was an unskilled laborer, but a very hard worker. He was supposed to have been absolutely lethal when it came to hodding, I think is the expression. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and he was a hot man. And, yep. his, his, and in terms of setting the pace, um, he was a very diligent and hard worker when he wasn't, when he wasn't drunk. That's the problem. Yeah. So he was born in 1856. He's in Dublin. He was the second eldest of 12 children. And they were from the North Strand area. He was ordained. He, sorry, ordained. He was baptized in the Pro Cathedral. And I think to this day, I think the Pro has a shrine to Matt um, on the left-hand side as you're looking at the high altar. And he left school at the age of 12. And he went to work in a wine merchant's store. The problem is, even at the age of 12, he soon began sampling their wares and was considered a hopeless alcohol, alcoholic by the age of 13. Wow. Uh, he then went on to Port and Docks, where he worked in the whiskey stores, could you imagine? And all the way up, he frequented pubs in the city with his brothers and friends, spending most or all of his wages and running up debts. Then in one evening in 1884, when he was 28, he was penniless. He was out of credit. Nobody would bring him in for a drink in any of the pubs. And several friends passed him by without even acknowledging who he was. And he went home in disgust and announced to his mother that he was taking the pledge, which he went on to do in Clonliffe, in Clonliffe College. And he took it for three months. And then he took it for another six months. And then he took it for life. So he drunk, he was an alcoholic for 16 years, and then he was sober for 40 years of his life. And um, the first seven years, of course, were quite difficult, and he became very devout, attending mass, daily prayer, and so on and so forth. Um, His spirituality is very much focused on uh, prayer, fasting, and service, um, trying to model himself on the early Irish monks. Mm -hmm. And he, now, the interesting thing about it was, Matt had a spiritual director, and the spiritual director encouraged him to wear um, chains. Now, when we say chains, they were very light, like the chain of a clock, right? Mm. And they were a form of penance because they were irritants. And it was also a reminder, it was a reminder to Matt in terms of his, his pledge to stay sober, but also as a form of um, asceticism, I suppose. Um, he died, he, and nobody knew anything about this until he died because he collapsed on his way to Mass of heart failure in Dublin. He was taken to Jervis Street Hospital, as it was at the time. And when they took off, his, took off the clothes, they found, you know, the, the, the chains the um, there. So that got people's, people's attention. And so they started the process for his investigation into his life in 1931. And he is buried in, uh, I'm going to say, Sean McDermott Street, the church on Sean McDermott Street in Dublin. Um, and he was declared venerable by Paul VI in 19, 1975. So it's an interesting one. Ta- uh, Pat, Matt is one of the patrons, I suppose, of the, the Pioneer Total Abstinence Association. We had them on a couple of weeks ago in the program. There's a big devotion to him actually in Australia, um, oddly enough. Um, and it's just, it's an interesting one. Matt's story is an interesting one. A guy that most people would write off. Yeah, he's buried in Sean McDermott Street in Dublin in the Lady of Lourdes Church and where he spent his life. And that's where his remains are. And if I'm not mistaken, I need to double check this, but I think Francis, Pope Francis went to that church when he was in Dublin. I need to double check that. I'll come back to you on that one. Okay. But anyway, okay. John, they're just a couple of the saints, the Irish, the, the causes, the Irish causes that are pending where we're looking for, you know, stories, testimonies, miracles to push them on towards sainthood. But I thought they were an example and very multifaceted example of witnesses to the gospel in different facets of life. Uh, which I thought we'd just share with people uh, this Sunday morning. You know, thanks for that. And it just reminds me, as you as you recounting those stories, beautiful. Um, I was just thinking there of Father Payton, Father Patrick Payton, and he's one, I think he's a venerable, he's at the venerable stage at this point. But we had often spoke about possibly revisiting that centre again and revisiting his uh, story and so on and so on. We might pick up that sometime. Yeah, uh, but but just to remind myself again, Shane, the way it goes: servant of God, venerable, beatification, and sainthood. They're the four steps. 
Servant of God, Venerable, Beatification, and then Canonization. Canonization, excuse me. Okay. And it starts off with... Um, from the diocese they have to gather certain information and through, through, through the bishop forward it on to Rome to the causes of the saints the causes of the saints chat about it for a few centuries or a few weeks or a few years or whatever it might be exactly and yeah. they come back to say to the Pope okay we recommend yes but, but the Pope doesn't just automatically say listen I fancy that guy should be a saint it no. goes through this process no. Oh, there's a whole process that it has to go through, a whole investigation. Now, people might remember there used to be a thing called the the devil's advocate. Mm. Now, yes. it was it was part of the process. Now, they got rid of it in the 1960s. I think personally, myself, it should be brought back. But um, it's basically the person was trying to dig up the dirt on any potential saint. Yeah. Um, so it was like a court case. You had to argue your case that the person was a saint. Um and it's some some causes just sit there and they don't move because maybe they don't have a postulator or yeah. maybe there's no funds for being able to do the investigations and gather the paperwork and all that type of thing. Um, so it's 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 um, yeah, that's that's that. There one. must be thousands of them sold in the pipeline going back oh, to yeah. the centuries and exactly exactly. Shane, thanks a lot for that. Maybe we might take a little bit of music uh, at this stage. Um, one that I was thinking about when you mentioned to me about uh, speaking about saints and causes of saints, um, I think it's a nice one. It's entitled Shine, Jesus Shine, and it's by Eden Espinanza. Come back and join us again in the third part of our program this morning where we read and reflect on the Word of God. So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Kelly, still joined by Shane Ambrose. Thanks a lot, Shane, for running through um, the cause of the science, the early science. I, I know that was probably a part of what you'd like to say, but a very comprehensive and it gives us a good taster. Uh, thanks a lot for that. We'll have to keep an eye on maybe what's happening uh, around the science uh, from time to time. But now we'll read and reflect on the Word of God, uh, the Sunday Gospel, this one for the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And before that, Shane always shares his prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this Word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your Word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. 
Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed and our minds wander. But may we give ourselves entirely to this listing. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. So now we come to the part of our program where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel. And we give our thoughts, uh, just a few little thoughts that might come to ourselves, maybe to prompt people to maybe read and reflect themselves in their own time. But this is the Gospel for today. It's taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and verse 24 to 35. Uh, Now, as we usually say, it might sound familiar, but it's important for us to listen again because no doubt the Holy Spirit wants to speak some a different maybe thought in our minds. So let's see. When the people saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into their boats and crossed to Capernaum to look for Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, I tell you most solemnly, you're not looking for me because you have seen the signs, but because you had all the bread you wanted to eat. Do not work for food that cannot last, but work for food that endures to eternal life. The kind of food the Son of Man is offering you. For on him, the Father, God himself, has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do if we are to do the works that God wants us? That God wants. Jesus said, gave them this answer. This is the working. This is working for God. You must believe in the one he has sent. So they said, What sign will you give to show us that we should believe in you? What work will you do? Our father said, Mama, to eat in the desert. As Jesus, as Scripture says, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered, I tell you most solemnly, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, it was my father who gives you the bread from heaven. The true bread, the bread of God, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, give us, the, the, give us that bread always. And Jesus answered, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never thirst. The Gospel for today from John chapter 6. Shane, have you got a thought you want to share with us, please, sir? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. Um, as you said, John, the, the Gospel this week is one that's very familiar with us. And of course, that famous line at the end, maybe we might be able to even have the music, I am the bread of life. But it's just that... Um, it's a gospel that is that can be too familiar to us that we need to pause and reflect on. You know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never thirst. And for me, I suppose this gospel is very modern in some respects because what we have here is people looking for a sign, looking for something. They weren't sure what they were looking for. And I think in the modern world, it's very much speaks to the modern existence, particularly, I would say, well, there's older categories, but particularly people my own age and younger, where we are, we're millennials or we're Generation Z or Generation, whatever the other one is, I can't remember. But the whole thing is we're classed as the spiritual but not religious generation. We're looking, looking for something. We're picking bits and pieces from different things and putting it all together in a big a la carte menu kind of approach. Um, nothing wrong with that, just, just, just to be clear, just, 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 just before people kind of start turning things off. But I suppose what we're looking at from a Christian point of view this morning, looking from a gospel point of view this morning, is what is Jesus offering? He's offering to be the source and the resource and the cessation, the satisfaction of that hunger that is within each of us for something greater than ourselves you know and it's it's there it's something which is hardwired into us you know it's who we are as human beings now of course the great expression around it is that from saint augustine lord um, my heart is restless until it rests in thee you know and even you know the great atheists i'm not sure if it was richard dawkins or his other henchman mr mr christopher hitchens um, made the point that this is something that's innate in us as human beings. It's coded into our genes and our makeup. That this design, this desire, rather, for the trans, the the, the transcendent, the, for the divine. 
Um, and, you know, as Christians, we say, well, yes, we are created in the image and likeness of God. That divine spark is within us. As Christians, we say we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, so that is something that is there in each and every one of us. And it's how we respond to that call, that, that invitation, that moment where we have this longing in our hearts for something greater than ourselves and how we respond to it that's so key in the decisions and the roles that we play in life. Um, it's something which Pope Francis talks about, this idea of discerning where we are called. But you have to be able to listen. You have, you know, to know where you're being called, you have to be able to hear it and listen to it. Um, and to be able to identify what it is that you are looking for. So the, for me, this gospel this Sunday is very much touching on that whole idea that we are, all of us, on a journey trying to find, um, trying to answer that need that's within us to encounter the divine, to share in the divine. And it's, you know, as from a Christian point of view, our focus, of course, is on Christ crucified and risen. And from a Catholic point of view, we have a particular belief and a particular focus on the Eucharist. Um, and Jesus is telling us that he is the bread of life and that, you know, after what everything that's happened in terms of Calvary and the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist and all the rest of us, the institution of the priesthood, that Christ is present to us in the Blessed Sacrament. And it's something which I suppose we shouldn't really take for granted because there is a huge uh, question mark out there in terms of what we understand by Jesus being present in the Eucharist. There's been a number of surveys done, particularly in the U.S., where basically, depending on how the question is asked and the answers that are pushed, because, like, you know, surveys, surveys and the statistics are lies, damned lies, but depending which way the question is asked, there is a degree of confusion about exactly what it is that the church teaches in relation to the real presence. But going back to the gospel, I suppose the question for us this Sunday is, you know, um, what is it that we are looking for, like the people that were following across to Capernaum? You know, at the time they were looking for, they, as Jesus said to them, you know, you're not looking for me because you have seen the signs. And I suppose that's one of the challenges that's there. Sometimes uh, we're looking for the, 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 the big bang. We're looking for the... We're looking for the response. We're looking for the drama. We're looking for the sign that's there. And I suppose that's the difficulty because the journey to faith, or the journey in faith, or the journey with faith is literally what that is. You take, you take a jump. You take a leap into something because you're not 100% able to say this is this, this, this is cert with certainty. And particularly in the world that we live in today where there is this absolute fascination of scientism, which is you, you, something's only true if you can prove it to scientific standards. But the whole, I think, the whole problem with that, particularly when it comes to the, the discussion about God, is that, well, how do you define love? To be able to apply the scientific method, to be able to prove an experiment that something exists, you have to be able to define it. And by its very nature, God is not definable. You know, so you can't prove God's existence in a scientific manner. And there's that whole debate that goes on, looking for signs and symbols, looking for certainty. And, and that's something we need to be careful of because there's, you know, you could say there's only two certainties in life. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that said it. You're going to die. And you're going to pay taxes. You know, faith is, is not certainty. Faith is faith-seeking reason. Faith, with reason-seeking faith is theology that we strive using our intellect, using our heart, using our bodies to encounter the divine. And ultimately, you get to a stage where you have to say, Lord, I have come this far. You're going to have to do the rest in terms of your journey in faith, you know. Um, and that, for me, that's what this Sunday's Gospel is about. It's about that journey and the fact that Jesus says to us, you know, he is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He is, he is the satisfaction of that hunger that is within our innermost being, within our absolute depths. But we have to be able to respond. And that therein is the challenge for us this Sunday. It's that ability, that openness for us to be able to say, Lord, here I am. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're asking for me? And it's not easy to be able to make that admission 
it's not easy to be able to say, yes, what is it that I'm asked for? And it's something, I suppose, that we, we are called to discern, something that we're called to, to develop. Um, and you can only do that in a number of ways. First of all, from a Christian point of view, you would say prayer, first and foremost. You have to open your, yourself up to the silence of the encounter with the divine. From a Christian and particularly from a Catholic point of view, we would say it's participation in sacraments and particularly communion and confession. Um, that gives us the strength, gives us the gifts, gives us what the, the old terminology, gives us the grace to be able to sit with and encounter the divine and have that moment of metanoia, that moment of, of turning back to the Lord. And as we said again and again on the program, you know, the Lord is very near. We just have to turn to him with an open heart. Shane, thanks for those thoughts. Thanks, thanks a lot. Actually, two thoughts uh, stayed with me today, very similar to what Shane said. In answer to the question put, um, to, put to Jesus, what must we do if we are to do the work that God wants? And Jesus answered, you must believe in the one he sent. So for me, it means staying in touch with Jesus in my life. How else can I get to know Jesus? It's reminding me to ask Jesus in prayer before I start my day. As Shane just said, what would you like me to do for you today? We'll be reminded as we live out our day of the various opportunities that come our way to carry out God's work. Believing in, in, in Jesus is to read the Word of God in Scripture every day and allowing Jesus' space to speak with me and guide me. I suppose the second thought that came to me today was those statements, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never be hungry, he who believes in me will never thirst. And I need to reflect more and more and more on that statement. Is Jesus the bread of my life? Or do I feed myself with other bread? Power or wealth or comfort or whatever it might be. That often exclude my neighbour. If we really believed the statement that includes the words, he who comes to me will never be hungry and he who believes in me will never thirst, we would stay close to Jesus by receiving the word in Scripture and his body in Holy Communion, as often as we can. Bottom line today, like Jesus is again reminding us that he is the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never thirst. Beautiful way to maybe finish off our reflection for today. Shay, thanks a lot for joining me today and again sharing those words of inspiration with us and as you say a beautiful piece of music to finish off the program today it is indeed uh, I am the bread of life and it's sung by the Toulon Notre Dame folk choir so until next time we meet again uh, from Shane and John thanks again for joining us Uh, take care and God bless bye now